Today's passage comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 to chapter 11, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. This is the word of God. You know, today we're going to finish this series looking at the five solos of the Reformation by looking at what's called soli deo gloria, which translates to, to the glory of God alone. Now, I'm surveying everybody here, and uh, I think many of you have probably been around church or have been at least been around other believers and other Christians, and this word glory gets used a lot, does it not? We use it in kind of our Christian lingo and our Christian language and the way we pray, the way we talk to each other. You hear people uh, say, God, would you be glorified in our prayers? We sing about it in our songs. And there's good reason for that because scripture is filled with declarations of God's glory. Uh, you know, we began our worship service today with a call to worship, and it said, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. But for a word that we use so often, uh, I imagine a lot of us would have a hard time explaining exactly what glory is. If I give you a minute just to think, all right, someone asks you, what is glory? What would you say? How would you explain it? I think it's, it's a little bit of a hard thing to explain, uh, and it can feel a little bit abstract. But at the same time, if you are a believer, I think there's also a sense in which you do actually know the glory of God, that at some point in your life you have experienced the glory of God, even though you might struggle to explain it. And I think there's a sense in which our hearts are the most filled with joy when God is most glorified. There's a, there's a catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and the first question starts out like this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer that it gives us, it's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The catechism is basically saying that the way uh, our meaning, our purpose, everything that we do, everything that we are, the chief end of that is to give God glory. Many years ago, I read this book by uh, a well-known pastor named John Piper, and he wrote this book called Desiring God. I read it in college. When I read it, right, it kind of changed, changed, it blew my world. And uh, he tweaked that question a little bit, and he said, uh, <coughs> what is the chief end of man? Uh, it's to glorify God, and he changed by enjoying him forever. And he introduced this concept of the way we glorify God is by enjoying God, enjoying who he is. And for me at the time, at least, that, that kind of freed me from thinking about Christianity less about uh, drudgery, less about following rules, less about doing X, Y, and Z, but more about enjoying the God, the relationship I have with God, with the God who saved me and with the God who redeemed me. 
Piper, he also wrote another book about missions, and he applies this idea as being our motivation for doing missionary work. And his famous quote from that book is this, mission exists because worship does not. And the idea that he's trying to get across there is that our ambition for the glory of God, the reason why we witness to the gospel, the reason why we participate and engage in missionary work is so that God would be worshipped, so that he would be glorified. And that's a really important distinction to make because when a typical secular person, I think, in New York thinks about the impetus for Christian missionary work, I think the picture that they often get is, uh, I am going to go out and try to recruit others to join my team, to join the right team. Uh, But if you understand the glory of God, then it puts the impetus of missions in a different context because rather than recruiting somebody to your team, it's, it's more like discovering this uh, amazing restaurant in New York City and uh, it has low prices and the desserts are wonderful and experiencing that and just really wanting to share it with others. I think that's what the impetus of mission is supposed to be like. You're so excited that you want to share it. And the glory of God is so important even when it comes to our work as believers, our, our witness for the gospel, because we have experienced the worthiness of God and we want to others to share in that experience as well. And that's why, friends, we will, I don't think, ever be effective in missionary work, in being a witness in the city, if we're not really worshiping, if we're not experiencing the very glory of God. Because otherwise, it's going to be disingenuous, right? Otherwise, it is going to be more like, let me recruit you to my team, rather than let me share something wonderful with you. Now, this topic on the glory of God, oh, I had such a hard time uh, thinking about how to preach it because it's such this, this is vast, wonderful, and beautiful topic. And I know when I go home today, uh, I know I'm going to be disappointed with this message uh, because I know I'm, I'm not going to do justice to the glory of God. Because th- if you think about it, how do you talk about something so wonderful? How do you talk about the glory of God within a half hour span? It, it's impossible, right? There's so many important passages and so many important things to look at in the Bible. But what I decided to do today is limit our discussion to this passage in 1 Corinthians 10. And this isn't the first passage concerning the glory of God that one would think of, but there's actually a couple reasons why I selected this passage. You know, the first passage I I selected it is, uh, it gives us this good summary statement about how everything that we should do should be for the glory of God. Second, I chose this passage because it, it also talks about Christian freedom and Christian liberty, which is something that Martin Luther is known for writing about. And finally, I, I chose this passage because I don't know if you noticed, but every uh, passage I chose in this series have come from the letters of Paul. So I just thought I'd be consistent and choose something from uh, the Apostle Paul. But the verse that we're going to focus on today is from verse 31, which says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And some of you, you might be familiar with that verse, and it's often used shorthand of of saying that everything we do should be for the glory of God. And if you're a foodie, it means this, that you should be especially encouraged by this verse because every time I go to that restaurant and eat, every time I, I taste that wonderful food and it goes down my mouth and I just enjoy it, I can do it for the glory of God, right? So it's a very encouraging verse if you love food. But Paul, he, he's actually saying much more than that, right? He's not just talking about that because for the last couple chapters, he's been responding to some of the issues raised in this church, in the Corinthian church, and one of those issues actually had to do with eating food. Now, the situation here, it's a little bit complicated. Let me try to summarize it as quickly as I can. 
But basically, Paul, he is addressing meat that has been sold in the marketplace. And, you know, in the ancient world, the way uh, meat would reach the marketplace, it would first be offered as a sacrifice in a pagan temple. So whatever the local deity is, that animal would be brought in. It would be sacrificed to the local uh, god that that city worshipped. And because animals are very big and there's a lot of meat on it, there would oftentimes be leftovers from the sacrifice. And with the leftover meat from that sacrifice, what they would do is they would bring it to the marketplace and then they would sell that meat to others. And that's essentially how you would obtain your, your food, your meat. Paul would say at the beginning of chapter 10 that, you know, if you're a Christian, uh, you shouldn't be eating uh, this meat uh, in the temple as an act of worship because that's idolatry. Uh, you shouldn't do that. And that's essentially uh, his phrasing is you shouldn't eat it because this food was offered to demons. And when you do that, you're participating with demons. But you see, food, not, not sacrificed in the temple, but maybe later taken to the marketplace afterwards, that is a, a diff different matter. You know, in those days, all meat would have been uh, right, left over, brought to the marketplace. People would buy it. People would eat it. The issue was, uh, if you're used to that, and if you were uh, somebody who wasn't a believer before, and then you hear the gospel, you, you become a Christian, you used to partake in these practices, you know where that meat is coming from, and then all of a sudden you see all other Christians eating that meat, uh, you kind of get stumbled by it. Right? You, you, you're like, what? How can you eat that food? How can you eat that meat? Do you know that meat was sacrificed to this uh, local god in the marketplace? You shouldn't be eating that meat. So their consciences were stumbled. Now, those believers, Paul calls the weak, and there's believers that Paul calls the strong in the sense that they, they kind of knew better. They knew it was okay to eat food offered in the marketplace. But what these believers would do, they would say to those who were uh, pierced in their conscience, they would say, come on, guys, you got to know better, right? You got to know that it's okay to eat this meat. We have freedoms. I have a right to eat this meat, so I'm going to eat this meat. And uh, if you're bothered by that, then... It's tough for you. I'm still going to eat this meat. That's essentially the attitude that these believers had. And Paul, he is not addressing the weak here. He's actually addressing the strong, and he's saying this. You may have the right to eat your food, but you know what? Your decision shouldn't be based on your rights. Your decision should be based on love and serving others for the sake of the gospel. Martin Luther, he wrote this little book called On Christian Liberty, did you notice I, I try to quote Martin Luther in every message, too? This is the Martin Luther quote. Uh, in this book, he presents two propositions, and he says this. First proposition, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to nobody. Second proposition, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant to all, subject to everybody. Now, you're thinking those two propositions, they seem a little bit contradictory, but he's quick to point out these two statements are actually not contradictory, and he's basically getting this idea from 1 Corinthians 9.19, which says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. You see, when we think about our rights and when we think about our liberties, uh, we tend to think about it in the sense of how can I use my rights and liberties in order to serve myself? Uh, but for Paul, he's saying the right way to use our rights and the right way to use our liberties is actually not to serve ourselves, but to serve other people. And when you use your rights in such a way, you are actually experiencing the freedom that God has given you in Christ. That means you're truly free. And this is, I think, what gives us insight into what it means to actually glorify God. Now, how do you glorify God? It's, it's, it's actually not this abstract thing, oh, how do I glorify God? But here, it's, he's being very concrete. 
one of the ways in which you glorify God is by loving others and seeking the good of others, especially their salvation in Christ. And that sentiment is repeated here again in verse 33. He says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Now, salvation, uh, it doesn't mean this, right? It doesn't mean I'm a Christian, therefore I'm saved, therefore I'm better than you. That's not what salvation means. And I think that's oftentimes what people think when they hear uh, Christians talking about, hey, I'm saved. You're not saved, I'm saved. Now, if you've been following with this series, uh, one of the things that the reformers were actually trying to say was the very opposite of that. The very idea of grace means that we are not saved because we are better than others. We are not saved because we are more enlightened than others. We are not saved because we are more moral people than others. We're simply saved because God has been gracious to us. And therefore, nobody can boast. Nobody here can boast saying, I know Christ and therefore I am better. Salvation you know, it's actually a, a big concept that includes a number of things, and one of the things it means is uh, we can say that salvation means reconciling a relationship that was once broken due to sin, which means that we have, we are being recreated into the people that we were originally meant to be. And so within this grand story of scripture, we were created for the glory of God. Sin hinders us from doing that, which means when we live from the glory of God, what we are ultimately doing is we are living within our design of what we're created to do. Now, that might sound strange, I think, to some people, but I think there's a couple clues that point to the fact that we were created for God's glory. You know, these days, a, a lot of people want to get involved in social justice causes, uh, which is, of course, definitely a good thing. Uh, it's great to get involved in, in helping others. Uh, but, you know... <coughs> I, I wonder if maybe part of the motivation for getting involved in social causes is not necessarily uh, a heart to, to care and love for others, although I'm sure that is there. But I suspect maybe another reason why uh, especially younger people want to get involved in social justice causes is because I think there's a desire within us to be part of something that is bigger than ourselves, right? Uh, that's why I think the modern narrative that makes the ultimate purpose rooted in the individual self, in your achievements, in your identity, in what you're able to do for yourself and for your life, I don't think that works. And I think that leaves many people depressed and unhappy because you can't find ultimate meaning in yourself. You can't find ultimate meaning in your possessions, in your money, in your achievements. You can't find ultimate security even in an identity that you construct yourself. And I think most people, at least on an existential level, know this, which is why there's this desire to, to find meaning by going outside of ourselves and seeking something that is bigger than ourselves. And you see, that's a kind of a freedom. There's a kind of freedom in saying that the world is bigger than me because that also means the world is bigger than my problems, <laughs> the world is bigger than my anxieties. You know, the Bible, it gives us this grand story to resolve that problem for us, and it doesn't say get involved in a cause that is bigger than you, uh, <coughs> but it says this, get involved with a person who is bigger than you. You see, in the biblical story, we're told we are not in the center of the universe. And the more we magnify ourselves, the more we tend to magnify the pressures in our life, the more we tend to magnify the problems in our life. What has the power to kind of correct this self-centeredness, this narcissistic uh, tendency that we all have deep within our hearts? It's the glory of God the glory of God. The glory of God reminds us that God is the one who's actually at the center of the universe. 
Glory of God is the very focal point of the universe that draws us away from ourselves. And I think there's a lot of freedom in that. Uh, you know, just a little bit of a narrative. Uh, I, think, I think one of the things um, a few of us learned when we went on that overseas trip is uh, our experience of it was, you know, New York is not as big as we thought it was. <laughs> the, wor the world is much bigger. And what God is doing is so much bigger than uh, our perspective when we were living in New York. And especially in New York, we, we have a tendency to do that, right? Uh, we we kind of live in this New York bubble, and New York is the greatest city in the world, and everything else kind of doesn't exist within our purview. And I think the effect that that kind of has is when we think about the stresses that we have, they become so big, and we're just so burdened by all of these things. But here's my personal experience. When you, you go outside of New York, and you kind of disconnect from your personal lives and the things that you consider to be issues and problems and you see the rest of the world and you see amazing things that are happening in the rest of the world, uh, you feel a little bit lighter. And I think the reason you feel a little bit lighter again is because you realize God is so much bigger than simply what I experience here in New York City. And there's a freedom in that. Now how do we get that freedom? Contrary to what I just said, it's not by necessarily going overseas, but I think our passage gives us a hint by telling us where we at least don't find that kind of freedom. We don't find that freedom in a system of law. And in verse 23, Paul, uh, you'll notice in the passage, it's kind of quoted where people are saying, all things are lawful. Right? He's quoting an argument that the other side is making. And they're saying this, you know, all things are lawful, therefore I should be able to eat whatever I want. That's my right. I'm not, I'm not breaking the law. I'm not breaking any kind of law by doing this. And because it's lawful, nobody should be able to stop me. I should be able to do that. And Paul is quoting them, and uh, he's, you know, he's not saying it's wrong to eat this food. Uh, he's, he's actually saying something else. I think he's pointing to the fact that if that's how you think, then you are actually still bound. You're still enslaved to a system of law. How so? You know, there is a difference between a system of law and a system of grace. Uh, in a system of law, as long as you don't break the law, then you feel like you've done enough. And when you feel like that you've done enough, it creates kind of a ceiling or it limits uh, your love. Sometimes I'll do couples counseling, and I'll run into a couple, and they'll treat their relationship more like a business <laughs> arrangement rather than uh, a love relationship. So they'll have a conflict, and uh, some of you may be smiling. Uh, it happens all the time, right? And it happens in my marriage. We just tend to do this because we think that it solves a problem. You know, they'll have a conflict. And the way of resolving that conflict, they'll say this. They'll, they'll lay out some kind of informal contractual agreement. And so one person may say, uh, I'm just making this up. This isn't actual. But one person might say, all right, so you're mad at me because you don't think I'm calling you enough every day. How many times do I have to call you each day in order for you to be happy? And the other person will say, I want you to call me at least twice a day, and then I'll be happy. The other person says, okay, fine, I'll call you twice a day. You know what ends up happening? The person will call twice a day in order to fulfill the other person's law, but probably won't call any more than that, right? I've done my duty. I've fulfilled the law. I've called you twice a day. But if you're experiencing that, especially from the other side, I think you feel something is missing in that, right? You know what's missing in that? It's love. <laughs> love. 
You know, relationships can't flourish when you treat it like a business contract because there's no love in it. It doesn't require love. The person's not calling out of love because they're not bound, because they're just bound to a law. I think our nature is actually drawn to systems of law because it limits our love. And, and it's much easier to do. It's much easier to say, all right, I need to call you two times a day and I'm fulfilled my duty than to say, I need to love you. And that might mean calling you two times a day. That might mean calling you five times a day. <laughs> There's no limit to how many times I should call you if I love you. That's a much harder way to live, right? You see, the biblical idea of, of freedom is, is not our ability to be autonomous and to do whatever we want. The biblical idea of freedom is not uh, simply to just follow the law because when we're bound to the law, we're still not free. The biblical idea of freedom is basically saying this. You were created and you were redeemed to do something. You were created and redeemed to love God and you were created and redeemed to love other people. And until you can do that with a sense of there's no limit to that, you're not actually free yet. How do we become free? Well, grace. Grace sets us free. You see, in a system of grace, there is no limit to our, law, lo our love. There's no ceiling. There's nothing to confine one from actually loving somebody more. And that's true freedom because there are no constraints to our ability to love then. Paul, I think he is actually speaking against a system of law and speaking for a system of grace in verses 23 and 24 when he says this. All things are lawful, so you say, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, so you say, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. How do you go from caring about fulfilling a law to actually going up to care about the neighbor, care about the person? How do you go from caring about doing your duty and exercising your lawfully given rights to a place of caring about doing that which is helpful and doing that which actually builds people up? I think it only comes when you have this powerful encounter with the reality of God's grace in your life which happens when you hear and receive the message of the cross. Then you experience firsthand what it means for someone to give up their rights for your good. You know, there's a place uh, in the Gospel of Mark where James and John asks Jesus if they can sit at his right hand and left hand in glory. And, you know, the other disciples, they, they kind of get mad and indignant at that request. And uh, James and John, why do they ask for that? They ask Jesus that because they want the seat of honor. They want to be the ones to share in Jesus' glory. But it's so interesting how Jesus responds, and it's not something that they would expect to hear. Jesus says this in response, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you know why they probably didn't expect to hear that? Because their understanding of glory was interpreted, I think, primarily through the lens of the world. But Jesus, he is telling them, you're going to have to have a paradigm shift and reinterpret what it means uh, to live a life of glory. And you have to interpret it now through the lens of the cross. Jesus is telling them that the way to glory is actually by becoming a servant. The way to become great is to actually become low. But that paradox, it only makes sense when you know the message of the cross. On the cross, Jesus gave up his glory, gave up his rights as a son of God so that we might be saved. 
There's a Greek word in there that's translated as ransom, and it's, uh, it's kind of a rare Greek word. Uh, it's a word that's mainly used to describe uh, a payment that would secure the release of a slave or a prisoner. And when Jesus says he ga- came to give his life as a ransom for many, he's saying this, there is a cost to freedom. There is a cost to your freedom. There is a cost for your liberation. I am going to pay that cost with my life so that you can have the freedom that you need. He gave us freedom by becoming a servant. He offered us glory by emptying himself of his own glory. Why did he do that? You ever think about that? Why did he do that? Well, we could say he did it out of love for us. Why did he love us? Friends, there is no answer for that. (laughs) There is no greater mystery in the Bible than that. It's not the Trinity. It's not sovereignty of God versus freedom. The greatest mystery is, why did God love sinners such as us to the point that he would give up his own son to die upon a cross? We know what the answer is not. It's not because we're lovable people. It's not because we did something great or something important to merit God's love for us. The only thing we can conclude is that God is one who is full of grace and mercy and love, kind of love that is, in a sense, unimaginable for us. And you know, as recipients of such love and grace, what does it do for us? It actually frees us from ourselves, does it not? You know, there's something about being deeply touched by love and grace that makes us forget ourselves. And I don't know if any of you have ever had a powerful experience of that. And I mean the kind of uh, love and grace that it surprises you, right? It's so unexpected. It's so deep. It's so vast. It's so wide that uh, it just kind of shocks the core of who you are. And you kind of stop thinking about yourself and you just are bursting with a sense of love and you want to serve other people. I don't know if any of us have really had that experience, maybe on a human level. But I think we we do see a hint of it, and maybe we experience shadows of it. I I get this uh, illustration from my wife, but uh, I think one of the places you see it is in the story of Les Mis. Uh, You know, Les Mis, I I think one of the first things I took my wife to was uh, a Broadway show for Les Mis. I actually don't remember seeing it, but we, we saw it on Broadway. But uh, she was reminding me of the story of Les Mis, and if you've seen, I, I, I think I'm making a good guess. Nobody probably has read the whole book, right? It's like one of the top ten like longest books of all time. <laughs> but maybe you've seen the movie. Um, if you've ever seen the movie or if you know the story of Les Mis, there's this character named Jean Valjean, <coughs> and he starts out his life, he's a criminal. He is a criminal because he stole bread. And uh, because of that, he was imprisoned to slave labor for m- many, many years. He gets free, but because he has this uh, identity now of being an ex-convict, uh, he wants a place to stay, but nobody is giving him a place to stay. Then there is this kind bishop that comes and says, invites him into his, ho- into his home, I guess, or into the church. I don't know what it is, into his home. says, I will offer to uh, feed you, uh, give you shelter, and what Jean Valjean does is he takes that opportunity to steal silverware from the bishop. And he begins to put it in his bag, and he, right, he goes. Well, he gets caught. And because he gets caught, he gets arrested. 
the police, they bring him back to this bishop, and the bishop says, I've recovered, or the police say, I've recovered the person who stole your silverware. And what the bishop does is so amazing because at that opportunity, the bishop could have said, yes, he stole my silverware. Arrest him. Send him back to prison. But this bishop actually says, no, he is telling the truth. I gave it to him. I gave it to him. And he saves him from going back to prison. He gives him freedom. That's an important moment in that story because that is a moment of transformation for Jean Valjean. That's a moment where he, I guess, turns from being this uh, person who hates the world so much now to wanting to do good in the world. That's when his heart changes. Why does he do that? It, it can't be under compulsion. He changes because he had this powerful experience of grace in his life. That hate for the world, the sense that he felt like he was treated unjustly and thrown in prison unjustly, melts away because of the kindness and the grace of this bishop. You know, in Christ, that's what we have too, but to an infinite higher degree. If we have experienced such grace, if we know that we are more than just prisoners, we are dead in our transgressions. We are sentenced to an eternity of slavery and life imprisonment but Jesus Christ came and he said I'll take the hit on the cross you go free you go free how does that not change our hearts and melt our hearts in such a way that it's so full that we want to share that kindness and that grace with others you know we're supposed to live for the glory of God and that's where we find the greatest meaning and the greatest joy. And uh, there are a variety of ways in which we can do that. Uh, we do that when we worship and g gather together and worship. We do that when we set aside time to, to pray and read the word and praise God and things like that. And according to this passage, we, we also do that when we seek to serve others and not live for ourselves. When we give up our legal rights, things that we are actually allowed to do, but we give those up in order to build others up. How we do that comes down to whether we can just gaze at the glory of God and see his greatness, see his love, and see his grace for us and realize not only what we've been given, but realize how small <laughs> we actually are compared to him. And you see, if we can rest in that grace for even just a moment, then I think our hearts will be so full that we won't even try, right? Our, our reaction will be, I want to pour out myself for other people because my heart is so full because Christ poured out himself for me. And the irony is when we do that, we, we actually feel lighter. We feel a lot more free this burden that we maybe put on ourselves, this burden that maybe others put on ourselves, kind of just goes away. And we exist for the glory of God alone. You know, this is the end of the message, and just as I predicted, um, I'm not happy with this message. <laughs> There's so many uh, things that we need to think and meditate and talk about when it comes to the glory of God. 
But maybe we'll just end, end with this, uh, with a quick prayer and say, may, may we number our days. And as we number our days, may those days be filled, seeking to give him all glory. And may we ex- experience such freedom as we do that. I invite you to uh, pray, and perhaps you can pray that as well. You know, we want to make an intentional effort to give um, our church just more, more opportunities and more moments to spend time in prayer. So we're going to do that now before we respond with a song of worship. But here, here's one thing I realize. Uh, there are things we can do to maybe facilitate experiencing the glory of God. But at the end of the day, uh, it's the power of the Spirit. It's God himself who has to reveal himself to us in a powerful way. And I think we all need that. And so maybe we can just, if we don't know what to pray, offer a simple prayer. God, show me your glory. Show me your glory that I might experience the smallness of who I am. Show me your glory that I might experience the smallness of my problems. Show me your glory that I might experience the great freedom of resting in who you are. And uh, after a few moments, uh, the worship team will lead us in a song.